break 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 Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Lebanon's Hezbollah is at once the most demonized and revered non-state actor in the Middle East. And when its leader, Hassan Nasrallah, speaks, both his admirers and detractors listen attentively. The organization emerged from villages in the rocky hills of the South to play a role liberating not only Lebanon, but also preventing state collapse in Syria and Iraq, while helping Yemenis defend themselves. And now as Lebanon approaches state failure, Hezbollah remains, defying the world as it provides security and services for the Lebanese. Lebanon has endured constant attacks and pressure from Israel, America, and their allies for decades, sometimes in the form of direct military confrontation, and more recently through a hybrid war involving sanctions, propaganda, violent provocations, social media, Western NGOs, and embassies. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by researcher and journalist Julia Kasim, who has a master's degree from the American University of Beirut and is a contributor to the leftist and most widely circulated Lebanese newspaper, Al Akhbar. Julia, welcome. Thank you for having me, Rania. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm super stoked about this discussion. I guess a good place to start when we're talking about a group like Hezbollah um, is its origins. That's to say, you know, the West and its regional allies, as we know, demonize Hezbollah because there's this gigantic, you know, propaganda apparatus to brand them as a bunch of terrorists and as Iranian proxies that are just ruining Lebanon and the region. And of course, this is just echoing, you know, the U.S. and Israeli propaganda that's labeled them a terrorist organization. And this goes back to what I mentioned before, which is this hybrid war on Lebanon and really, you know, a hybrid war on any anti-systemic movement that exists in the world. But before we get to addressing some of those accusations against Hezbollah, I think it's important to start with, you know, who is Hezbollah? What are their origins? Right. And so there's a number of misconceptions that people have when they um, try to conceptualize the Shia resistance um, or the Shia community in Lebanon vis-a-vis Iran and vice versa. Um, And against, you know, other than the obvious trope of Hezbollah being a terrorist organization, which is ascribed to a lot of um, resistance groups in the region, Um, there's this misconception that Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy and that, uh, the Shia, uh, community in, in, uh, Lebanon in general is like an outgrowth of, um, the Iranian state or entity. Um, when (laughs) this is historically like very untrue, um, even when Iran was transitioning over to, um, becoming, um, a Shia empire during the Safavid empire, um, hundreds of years ago, um, the, they imported sheikhs from Jabal Amal in Lebanon. Um, so it's, it, Shiaism was never an alien presence in Lebanon. Um, and uh, bringing it back to the, um, the, the movement um, in, in Lebanon, um, Musa, Hezbollah essentially grew out of the uh, movement for the dispossessed, uh, displaced by Musa Sadr in, in 1974. 
um, who was going to um, basically um, bring a, a revolution um, of, of the oppressed in Lebanon and in the region um, years before the Islamic revolution in Iran was um, successfully uh, carried out. So um, Hezbollah grew out of uh, the origins and the um, leadership of Sayyid um, Musa and his example and um, many that, that came after him and um, formed into the organization that they are today uh, officially in 1982. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the movement obviously grew out of the resistance of those um, that were occupied uh, in the South and in Lebanon. Uh, and uh, those, uh, the Shia community that were resisting against the Israeli occupation um, throughout the 70s and the 80s, um, they came from the SSNP, they came from the Communist Party, they came from, some of them were even um, fighting alongside uh, with the PLO, um, and the, a lot, some of them went to Hezbollah later on in the 80s, um, but there was essentially Hezbollah, it, it is the people, it is the, um, the movement that came directly out of those uh, displaced um, from farmers in the south to people um, in the outskirts of uh, Beirut that uh, took up arms uh, just like uh, their predecessors and a lot of like the parties that I mentioned did and um, resisted uh, the occupation, um, eventually strengthening um, their, their presence and their resistance into the um, organization um, that we see today. Yeah. And I mean, this is, of course, what gets left out, right, is like Hezbollah comes out of this broader resistance movement to Israel's occupation of southern Lebanon. But of course, there's also this other group called ML, which is also a Shia movement at one point, Hezbollah and ML, I believe, were like a part, were part of the same movement, but then there was a split. And I'm curious if you could just give like a brief overview of what is the difference between this group Hezbollah on one side and ML on the other, because they are sometimes allied. And then historically, they've sometimes been at odds with each other in quite a violent way. Right. So, so philosophically, um, there is um, Hezbollah, which is very cause-driven, and then Amal, which after the 80s, after the disappearance of Musa Sadr in 1978, and uh, later the ascension of uh, Nabi Berri to the leadership of, of Harakat Amal, um, kind of more of a pretty typical establishment party. Um, and uh, the, the difference uh, philosophically, as we see today, um, with Amal and Hezbollah is one is kind of oriented more around um, more uh, political justifications uh, for what they do in the sense that they're more um, aimed at maintaining their share in the balance of power in the context of the Lebanese state. Um, mm -hmm. And Hezbollah, who is cause-based and oriented more around um, being a resistance organization and maintaining um, their accountability to the ultimate um, cause of Palestinian liberation and um, the expulsion of the Zionists and American occupation um, in Lebanon. And of course, it's done in a very long-term strategy and um, they have a lot of patience in how they're approaching um, this strategy in the context of all these contradictions of working within the Lebanese state. Um, but those are essentially the... Um, political premises that really define uh, the difference between 
Amal and um, Hezbollah. Of course, the war between brothers throughout the Civil War. Many right. different, um, everybody was killing everybody. Um, yeah. There was a lot of infighting, um, not just between Hezbollah and Amal, but, um, but also between um, all different, a lot of different parties that um, ended up um, coming under the umbrella of the March 8th Alliance um, after 2005, uh, which we'll explain more a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but after 2000, it was established that um, basically to maintain the unity of um, a community that were essentially very intertwined with each other uh, within, and, and to not cause um, the, the infighting uh, that we saw in like the late 80s and early 90s between Hezbollah and Amal, they established and solidified uh, their uh, political alliance. Um, and this doesn't mean that there is a um, complete 100% agreement on issues domestically or on strategy or even long-term horizon or vision. Um, but what it means is that there is a agreement on the basic principle of maintaining um, unity amongst a significant segment of the Lebanese population. Um, and ultimately on a principle that hopefully more segments of um, the, the Lebanese uh, society that finds alignment with um, principles of sovereignty um, can um, find common ground on. And this is the, this is the main principle that Hezbollah has sought to um, solidify their alliance on uh, with different parties. Um, they did successfully with the Free Patriotic Movement in 2006 with the yeah. Mama <laughs> Agreement um, and with other parties that consider themselves um, March 8th. Against it's, it's not like a complete agreement on everything. It's just on the basis of um, the sovereign principle of never allying uh, or recognizing um, Israel enabling Israeli occupation of Lebanon or, and also, um, uh, basically maintaining a Lebanese sovereignty against, uh, the American occupation, um, as well. Right. And, you know, and I, I we're going to get into all of those things that you mentioned, uh, but I wanted to just very quickly address, you know, when people do think of Israeli occupation, they all, they do think of Palestine and you're talking about Hezbollah, coming out of this uh, milieu, if you will, of mm -hmm. Israeli occupation and resistance to it in the 80s. Um, but, you know, very little is known about how brutal Israel's occupation of Lebanon was because we really, again, only think about it in the context of Palestine. And your family is from southern Lebanon and endured Israel's attacks and then occupation in this country in a way that not all Lebanese did, right? Because this was a geographic situation where the South was specifically targeted. So yeah. can you just give us an idea of what this period was like? I know it was lengthy. Israel occupied Southern Lebanon for a very long time, but yeah. just, just how brutal it was. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to be really, really technical, I'm from the West Baca. Um, but it's like the most southern, most region of it. And basically, it's like a five minute car ride away from what is considered the, the southern province. So um, uh, my village was, um, Mashkara wasn't occupied for as long as the southern villages were like some under complete occupation for completely 18 years. But it was a strategic point where um, it was an entry into the southern uh, village of Marjayun, which is where a lot of the Israeli-backed southern Lebanese um, army forces uh, were. Mm -hmm. And um, it did have like a mix of some people that were informants basically for Israel and um, a lot of groups that were 
um, engaged in the uh, resistance against it. So um, from between the 70s and 80s, especially, there were um, my village, uh, Mashkara, it basically had a lot of people from the Communist Party and the SSNP, um, later also Harakat Amal as well. Um, and they were pretty critical in a lot of uh, resistance operations against uh, the Israeli presence. Um, and whenever like an operation would happen, such as the um, a bombing against an Israeli convoy um, mm. that uh, was carried, that was actually led by the Communist Party there, um, they would basically come in. They would try to find um, anybody either they suspected with information or with. Um, uh, that was responsible in operations against them, and they would take them to Khiyam to torture them, to get out information from them. Um, if uh, they felt like they couldn't really get a lot out of somebody, they would just, you know, hold them for a month, torture them a bit, which usually involved um, putting electrical cables to their fingers and shocking them um, repeatedly uh, or beating them in a cell. Like, then they would um, let them out, uh, depending on how, important they kind of perceived someone um but um yeah uh that kind of like defined a lot of like the tactics and strategy that they would um the israeli occupation would uh do at the time um and a lot of families uh fled too uh they fled to like nearby christian villages like a lot of people from mashkara went to sarabin um and and you know Aitanit and stuff like that um a lot went to Beirut. There was like a huge influx, obviously, of uh, Shia that went to Beirut when their villages were being either occupied or attacked. Um, and uh, this is essentially um, the story of, of how it went down. If the Israelis weren't being outwardly aggressive, which um, obviously aggression is their um, modus operandi, um, mm. they were kind of to basically... Um, make informants, allies, um, they would basically kind of like, oh, like pretend to give candy and, and um, basically um, promise to drive out the, the meddlesome and disruptive Palestinian presence um, <laughs> right. from Lebanon, which, you know, some, a few people believed, like, obviously, like, the, um, the resistance against Israel was, was overwhelmingly um, the choice of people in occupied South Lebanon. But you, you had your compradors and your yeah. traitors, too. Um, so, um, yeah, this kind of like was essentially the environment at the time. Um, and but, but thankfully, um, they were driven out. Um, they kind of sustained a lot of losses between mm. the mid-80s, late-80s, um, up until their eventual uh, defeat in 2000. So I really want to, I want to briefly touch on the, and the issue of some of the other parties that you mentioned, particularly the communists, because there's this ongoing rivalry, excuse me, there's an ongoing rivalry, which you and I discuss quite often because, you know, we're leftists and there's this ongoing rivalry in Lebanon between the Lebanese communists who did in fact lead the resistance in the 1970s during the civil war. And then Hezbollah who took over the mantle in the, in the 1980s uh, when I, when talking about resistance. So from what I understand, a good number of communists 
actually joined the ranks of Hezbollah and, of course, other movements as well, uh, because as the communists got weaker, there were other movements to join if you wanted to resist, right? And Hezbollah was one of them. Others, of course, remained angry that Hezbollah and the Iranian revolution, as they see it, stole their thunder, if you will. So my question for you is, you know, why do you think the Lebanese Communist Party, the LCP, for example, and, and not just them, I mean, other leftists as well, I'm just kind of using them as the umbrella uh, leftist organization that probably does have the most members in Lebanon as far as le- the left is concerned. But why do you think the Lebanese Communist Party and other leftists remain so antagonistic towards Hezbollah today? And why do you think Hezbollah, unlike the Communist Party in Lebanon, was able to galvanize people against, ultimately against imperialism in a way the LCP wasn't able to? Right. So, um, I think we just have to also um, clarify that from um, throughout throughout the years, um, and we even saw this in the aftermath of the 2019 protests. There's um, there's kind of a dynamic where there's a segment of um, communists in Lebanon that have stood by Hezbollah and the resistance mm. on the principles of anti-imperialism, and there's like a more liberal segment, um, such as you know that that kind of led them to meet with the Kataib. Um, yeah. in the aftermath of the protests. So um, there, there, is a, there is a split, definitely, um, as you would see in other groups with not really the, as kind of like solid of, of a power and a presence. Um, there's a split in the SSNP too, not over the same issue, but I just mean in, in, in general, um, mm-hmm. with organizations that um, have like people kind of like varying ideologies and interpretations on things, um, different kind of positions. And the LCP, people from the LCP's position on Hezbollah is uh, um, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, in the aftermath of, the, I mean, there's like a number number of reasons we can kind of attribute to this, kind of in the aftermath of um, the Soviet Union's collapse that kind of caused a big um, existential crisis for the left worldwide Um uh, I mean, in Lebanon, historically, um, the Communist Party, when it was, you know, first founded and created in the 20s and, and 30s, it was like mostly upper middle class um, intellectuals that led it. That led it. And um, when representatives from the Soviet Union were coming um, to Lebanon and helping organize the party, um, the Lebanese Communist Party actually supported the partition of Palestine. Um, right. And this is something that um, a lot of um, that is kind of like a little bit of a stain um, on the on the connotation of, of communism um, in in Lebanon um, amongst like the anti Zionist community. Um, of course, it was redeemed by the 1960s when you had uh, tobacco farmers organizing and striking, um, uh, and a lot of like these people who were communists. Um, being the first to initiate the um, southern resistance against the the Israeli um, occupation in the in the early to mid seventies, um, and among the first, I mean, um, so of course the, uh, by the practice of struggle of uh, of these people in the south, um, they were able to really redefine um, the the stance of the Communist Party of Lebanon, and I believe do so completely successfully. Um, mm-hmm. from some of the mistakes of more of the petty bourgeois into 
intellectuals um, of the 20s and 30s. But um, I think that for these um, differences, uh, both the the split between um, idea like more ideological liberalism and um, more material engagement with class struggle um, that we see dividing um, the two defined contradictions of the left worldwide. Um, the, that contradiction basically um, has the Lebanese Communist Party hasn't really been spared from it. So um, I think this is kind of like the underlying factors why we do see um, this uh, duality um, and also like maybe it kind of manifests itself in some of the antagonistic feelings uh, towards Hezbollah as being the, um, the one that, as you say, stole the thunder of um, <laughs> the resistance against uh, the Zionist entity. Um, some people will say that, oh, well, Hezbollah killed our, the leaders of the, of the communist movement. Um, but I mean, this was happening, first of all, in the Civil War era where everybody was killing everybody. Um, and it's not proven that if it was Hezbollah or ML or someone from another party that um, killed leaders that often Hezbollah are accused of killing. Right. Um, but of course, like applying um, the, uh, the applying accusations to Hezbollah at a time where every single party was killing leaders and members from, from other parties is um, a little bit not, like it's it's a little bit like of a stretch, but it's like yeah. one accusation you'll you'll hear from people sometimes. Um, but at the same time, like there's a lot of solidarity between people that consider themselves communists um, and um, find find themselves in support with um, Hezbollah. And in a 1995 interview with the Journal of Palestine Studies, uh, Sheikh Mohammed Hussein Fatullah reiterated that um, unity is a central principle in Islam. And he even mentioned that we seek unity with Marxists against the international, uh, against the forces of international arrogance, which is imperialism, uh, as well as Arab nationalists and um, secular nationalists too. So um, this, um, any differences um, are not really inherent to either ideology, but um, are just the, the contradictions of uh, ideological liberalism and material class struggle. Moving on from all this time, you have Hezbollah really, especially throughout the 90s, being at the forefront of resistance to Israel's occupation uh, of southern Lebanon. And then you get to the year 2000, right? In the year 2000, Hezbollah accomplishes something that no other Arab force has ever managed to accomplish, and that is they expelled the Israeli occupation, they forced the Israelis to withdraw. And so what was the significance of that moment, do you think, in 2000? Before that moment, every single Arab, um, especially the Arab nationalists, Nasiris, everybody, they, they believed deep down inside that um, Israel couldn't be defeated. Um, like my grandpa, for example, he was the biggest Nasiri, but th there was a moment, especially before 2006, um, but also he gained reassurance after 2000 that um, Israel would never be defeated and the Arabs would always be, would always lose. So um, the liberation in 2000 and especially the, um, like basically the, the, the success um, and the victory against Israel in 2006 
um, it reaffirms uh, to the whole Arab world um, and to the whole Muslim world that um, Israel can be defeated. And this is when Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah said in a speech um, that Israel is weaker than a spider's web. Because um, all throughout history, it's not Israel's strength that um, allowed it to constantly beat uh, its Arab neighbors in battle. It uh, was the weakness and the division of the Arabs. And this is why um, Sayyid Nasrallah always emphasizes, um, and always like the Hezbollah in general, um, their first priority is to keep unity um, within you know, segments of the, the Arab society and across Arab political forces that find themselves in um, commonality of maintaining um, Lebanese and Arab sovereignty, essentially. Um, because, honestly, um, what 2000 has shown and what 2006 reaffirmed is that um, Israel's uh, fragility is a lot, um, Israel's a lot more fragile than, than people um, in the, the Arab world thought for 33 years. Yeah, and that's huge. I mean, even even now, I think um, till that that moment in two thousand, you know, still has an impact with my parents. Even I mean, my parents are they're not in Hezbollah at all or anything like that. <laughs> like, um, but no one, no one could watch uh, a group of people resisting Israel push them out from the Middle East and not be happy about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, and you mentioned 2006, I want to get to that. But first, I guess I'm trying to go through the timeline here because I I, I hope that as we're going through these these sort of details about Lebanon, it kind of gives people a bit of a historical perspective um, of, of, of what's happening throughout and sort of like Hezbollah's evolution. Because at the end of the day, the entire hybrid war that we're talking about on Lebanon is happening because his, Lebanon is home to Hezbollah. So it's important for people to understand who this movement is, what they've accomplished, uh, and, and what the sort of provocations against them have been and by who. So, so we get to the year 2005, Right. And this is an important year in Lebanon because it's the year that first Rafi al-Hariri is assassinated. Rafi al-Hariri was the prime minister of Lebanon. He, you know, showed up in Lebanon after the civil war, uh, was over in the early 90s. He's also Saudi. He was basically an agent of Saudi Arabia. Um, and he helped. And we're going to get into this later when we talk about the economic collapse. But he played a very important role in helping to shape the Lebanese economy, the Ponzi scheme economy that we're witnessing the collapse of as we speak. So 2005 is the year that Afit al-Hadidi is assassinated. Um, it's also the year of the so-called Cedar Revolution, which we now know was essentially an American project uh, using local proxies that pushed for the end of the Syrian presence in Lebanon, which they did accomplish. And this is when you have the formation of the two major alliances that you alluded to earlier. So one of these alliances is the pro-American, pro-Saudi March 14 alliance that they, as it's called, it was led by the future movement, which is of course the movement of the Hariri clan, um, the progressive socialist party, which is led by Willie Jim Blatt is, is neither, I should say progressive neither nor socialist. <laughs> yes, but that's what it's called. Um, and the Lebanese forces party, which is a basically like was a Christian fascist militia during the civil war and really still is. Um, <laughs> and for anybody who wants to know a lot more than just that about the Lebanese forces, 
I do recommend you go watch my interview with Asada Bukhalia. We got into a lot of their nasty past and their nasty present. But so these, the, this group is leading this March 14 alliance. It's a pro-American, pro-Saudi group. And then you had the emergence of what you talked about earlier, which is the March 8th alliance, which is this coalition led by Hezbollah, by ML, and by the Free Patriotic Mo- Movement, or for short, the FPM. Um, and this is when Hezbollah enters the Lebanese government for the first time with members of its political wing being elected to parliament in that March 4th, excuse me, March 8th coalition. So what's the significance of Hezbollah entering government as a political force for the first time? Right, right. And so Hezbollah first began to kind of like get into the the political realm first and after 1992 um, in running for parliamentary elections. Um, This was hugely controversial at the time, but it was um, it was relatively popular amongst um, the, the Shia community, even though it found some uh, conflict with uh, religious authorities uh, that wanted Hezbollah to kind of remain out of like the realm of the corrupt um, colonial Lebanese framework. Um, but uh, Hezbollah essentially just kind of ran on their own platform and with their own um, principles. And um the in 2005 this was to further basically their um, participation in the Lebanese government while at the same time not having any more material or tangible influence over the Lebanese government or the economy um, they basically entered into government in, in 2005 into like a new um, dimension and um, each time um, it was not really a decision taken because Hezbollah wanted to do this or because it was an easy decision, but because there it was to avoid uh, a negative outcome or, or something more negative, essentially, um, and to protect their ability, essentially, to resist. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant objective, even today, amongst the West um, that we also saw with the Western discursive interference in the post-2019 uh, protests um, is the disarmament of Hezbollah. Um, And so Hezbollah's um, involvement into government in their limited capacity has been basically to thwart the attempts that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been making in using the Lebanese government as a tool to disarm and expel um, Hezbollah. And it's so important that to, to frame it like this, because after this, after Hezbollah is in government for the purposes of basically protecting, like you said, its ability to resist, to protect its weapons, um, which, I mean, they do see themselves as protecting Lebanon's territorial integrity, whether it be from Israel or later we'll get to whether it be from the attack on Syria, which affected Lebanon. But that's the purpose of being there. And literally one year later, in 2006, there's a war. Um, you know, and of course, you know, we're told this war happened like the pretext was I, I think it was something like a couple Israeli soldiers were kidnapped and Israel had to start a war to save its soldiers. But it was a bit, essentially like an, an ambush that Hezbollah was reacting to. And then there's this war between Israel and Hezbollah that is so obviously about weakening Hezbollah because they're very upset that they're now in the Lebanese government, which until then had been under the control, basically, of the Saudis and Americans, like you said. So can you just tell our listeners and viewers, like, a little bit about the importance of this war and how it, like, how it ended? Because that's also really important, too. 
Yeah. So kind of to just to backtrack a little bit, there's a little bit more I should have explained in that last question about the, the significances of the alliances Hezbollah has formed after 2000, both mm-hmm. to prevent civil war and to prevent the possibility of a completely um, Saudi-backed government um, tur- turning against Hezbollah and basically removing them of their um, of their weapons, of their power, of their capacity to resist um, and protect uh, Lebanon against Israel. Um, in 2000, there was like the alliance, first of all, with Hezbollah and Amal. Um, mm-hmm. And then in 2006 uh, came the alliance with the Free Patriotic Movement and Hezbollah that I briefly alluded to before. And this was very significant because during the U.S.-backed uh, Cedar Revolution of 2005, um, it, the Free Patriotic Movement, which um, had been antagonistic to Syria, um, was actually positioned as like part of, like basically part of this effort to expel the Syrian occupation from Lebanon. And we know that Syrian presence was there as many mistakes as the Syrians made. Um, was like a, just a counterweight to the Israeli presence. So of course um, that became something um, not favor that an objective of Washington uh, to remove um, Syrian influence from Lebanon first, and then also Syrian uh, sovereignty in the region, as we saw um, post two thousand and eleven. Right. Yeah. So um, basically, when Hezbollah made um, their pact with the Free Patriotic Movement at the at the agreement at the Mar Mechel Church in, in 2006, uh, this was very significant because they took the principles that uh, the Free Patriotic Movement um, had, which were kind of like used against uh, Syria in a way of um, Lebanese independence and sovereignty, and emphasized this as a um, point of unity against the Israeli, Israeli occupation or Israeli interference into Lebanon. Um, so while the two parties, um, obviously they have their differences, um, the March 8th Alliance, as we alluded to, was an effort in solidifying in at least a anti-imperialist principle in Lebanon that Hezbollah, uh, could basically, um, use to protect their sovereignty, um, and to protect their, their, their presence in, in, in Lebanon and to protect, uh, Lebanese sovereignty ultimately. So um, when the 2006 war happened, um, in efforts to, to completely eliminate Hezbollah's uh, presence, this actually completely backfired. And <laughs> yeah. it, uh, Hezbollah uh, emerged uh, stronger, and it um, was a show of uh, force and power that Israel wasn't expecting and to this day remains terrified of. Um, there was, I remember a lot of discourse uh, that some apologists um, of American imperialism and of Zionism made in the sense that nobody really won um, Hezbollah's claiming like a victory over nothing. No, their objectives, um, Hezbollah's objectives were reached of um, expelling Israeli occupation from Lebanon, um, you know, starting with the kidnapping in July 2006 of, of the two Israeli soldiers that were Really pushing, uh, really pushing it in in their in their presence there, mm-hmm. um, but um, and of basically re- remaining retaining um, remaining in the country and not being thwarted by Israel, completely backfired. As I said, they emerged stronger. Um, so the two thousand six was, and it continues to be the one of the most significant losses um, of Israel 
um, from Israel, um, probably even um, a step far further than 2000 had been, because not only did they um, lose territory, but they also lost complete confidence in their ability to really challenge um, Hezbollah. Right. And I mean, it's like they they actually endured losses. Hezbollah was able to reach deep into Israel with their with their rockets, which they have way mm -hmm. better technology now. Right. So like yeah. Israel is even more scared of Hezbollah now than they were in 2006. And that's actually 2006. That's crazy that people even suggest that it was like, oh, it was a draw because Israel it it it, it because of 2006. There's deterrence. It gave Hezbollah yeah. deterrence capacity. That's the only reason there hasn't been another Israeli war on Lebanon since then. It's been, what, more than 15 years? Um, or it's been yeah. exactly 15 years. Sorry, my math isn't so great. But, you know, Hezbollah's performance against Israel was this huge deal. Nasrallah is then revered as this very, you know, important and admirable figure across the region. I think there was even, like, a poll done at the time that even like yeah. in Egypt, right? And very, very Sunni Egypt. Um, you know, Nisrullah was like one of the top three most revered figures there. Um, it was and of like course, uh, people were naming their kids uh, after him too. And <laughs> yeah. like, I think that was in Egypt too. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's. I mean, this was a huge deal. It was once again. This was twice, twice in 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 the you know the twenty first century. Now Hezbollah has managed to expel the Israelis. This is like more yeah. defeats that that air. You know, more defeats than ever since Israel's founding in the last. Six years. Than the any support, era yeah, and I, I think the support and the pride over Hezbollah. I still remember it at the, that to post two thousand six uh, juncture. It was incredible. It was like the reemergence of pan Arab spirit that right. the the region had lost for 40, 50 years. Yeah, that's like back in the days when you know Al Jazeera was still kind of doing that whole pan Arabism thing before they became like a Sunni nationalist channel. And I'm talking <laughs> about Al Jazeera Arabic here, although Al Jazeera mm -hmm. English it kind of applies to them too. So like you saw this, you know, widespread coverage, the entire Arab world was watching Al Jazeera, like in yeah. awe of what was Hezbollah was able to accomplish. You had, you know, Sunnis in Tripoli celebrating yeah. in the streets, like waving Hezbollah flags. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is important to mention this sort of cross sect uh, admiration for what Hezbollah accomplished against Israel, not just in Lebanon, yeah. but region. This provoked the Americans and their allies. It was, I believe, in the year 2007 that we learned, I think it was in 2006 that this began, but in the year 2007, we learned from this article uh, that was written by Seymour Hirsch uh, about Dick Cheney and Saudi Arabia's former intelligence chief, Prince Bandar, embarking on this policy to basically push anti-Shia hate across the Middle East. And this was all in an effort to weaken Hezbollah and, of course, Iran. Yeah. Um, and this hate was promoted by the Gulf media stations, uh, by the U.S.-backed Sunni parties in Lebanon, mm -hmm. and Christian parties, by the way, in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, really everywhere. Uh, and I would argue this campaign was at least partly responsible for pushing so many across the region to join the ranks of ISIS and the various Al-Qaeda groups that were backed by the U.S. and its Gulf allies in Syria. Because when you're, when you spend years just like consuming, you know, worse than Fox News level hate about Shias and minorities, it becomes much easier to join a regional hate right. group. And a lot of that Saudi-backed propaganda made its way into the poorer regions of the Arab world where in the absence of any kind of like material support or help, there was like this like Saudi Wahhabiist uh, backed money that was uh, both encouraging exactly. uh, these, this ideology of Shia hate, but also like uh, 
uh, like essentially funding them um, to join mm-hmm. the, the ranks of these like uh, sectarian terrorist groups. Exactly. And in so many ways, I mean, this, like, we could do like a whole episode on this, but it's actually what, yeah. you know, the the money from these Saudi and other Gulf state backed sort of like Salafi Wahhabi style mosques uh, did is they also, um, I mean, they essentially remade like Sunni Islam into the image of Saudi Arabia in places where that wasn't historically the case. I mean, certainly not in Lebanon, mm-hmm. um, not in Syria. These were all places where, you know, Sunni Islam had its own local customs and culture that it wasn't like this, you know, uh, cut cookie cutter version yeah, that exactly. just, comes, you know, where Saudi Arabia tried to remake Sunni Islam yeah, in its image, the, which is very the, Yeah, the homogenization of, of Sunniism uh, to be made into like the image of, um, of uh, like Saudi or hegemonic um, sect subgroup is is a very modern construct. Even like exactly. you have different subgroups and, and different, um, um, you know, um, literature like uh, philosophical traditions within what is considered like the homogenized Sunni subgroup uh, today. Um, And none of these ever had any kind of sectarian um, odds with like um, Shiism in the way that it has been manufactured to be. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of uh, the, because Shiism is largely passed down through like oral tradition. A lot of like the Shia hadiths hadiths in the books um, that compile like the sayings of the Imams and the prophets, um, a lot of those have drawn themselves from um, Sunni written uh, texts and, and books. So um, there's a lot of um, philosophical, like it's, it's one religion essentially. Um, yeah. But um, the, the construction of a Sunni Shia sectarian dichotomy as in the way we see today is definitely a modern construct used to prop up Wahhabism and the, um, the, the Comprador Gulf um, um, antagonism of, um, anti-Zionist, um, you know, uh, presence in the region, which um, has been taken on a little bit of a Shia character. Yeah. So exactly. And we're, we're, I actually want to get to that, but I, I raise all of this essentially to bring us to the war in Syria, right. Yes. As we're going down the timeline, um, mm-hmm. which was, a, you know, this, I think the war in Syria really was like this new phase in the growth of Hezbollah or the rise of Hezbollah, I should say. Can you, cause you know, we hear a lot of, we heard at least when this was a big issue that everybody was talking about, we heard a lot of criticism of Hezbollah's involvement in Syria. Mm-hmm. So can you briefly explain, like, why Hezbollah participated in that war? Well, one, it was evident that um, ISIS um, and these these terrorist groups were were getting to Lebanon. They were bombing all over the place um, in 2013. Um, they were besieging towns. They were beheading Lebanese army soldiers. So, I mean, it's it's not a problem that remained outside of Lebanon's borders and it would have gotten much, much worse had um, Hezbollah not entered Syria. Um, the other aspect of, of, their, of Hezbollah's uh, resistance against uh, Zionism um, and the, the Wahhabi proxies in the region um, is essentially, it's a, it's a regional problem. It's not one that's just isolated to the um, post-1946 uh, borders that we call Lebanon today. Like, no, essentially the, the problem of occupation and imperialism, it's very regional. And because there has been this um, coordination between um, Syria and between Hezbollah and um, Iran on the, princ- on the principles and purposes of, of driving out um, occupation from the, the country, 
Um, first, that is one of the prime factors that made is uh, Syria a target after 2011. Um, but also um, an objective of um, th- through destroying Syria was the greater objective of reaching Hezbollah. Um, and right. this was done through these proxies, essentially. So um, it's a very interlinked, uh, was a very interlinked problem, obviously. Um, and of course, like there was the um, the Syrian state and the Syrian institutions, um, one of the few regional countries that um, took up, maintained like a hard stance against the normalization with Israel mm-hmm. um, and, you know, their support of anti-Zionist forces in the region. Um, there was like a lot at stake in, in just letting it uh, crumble and descent into chaos. Um, right. So obviously it was no question that Hezbollah had to prop up their, their support um, to Syria. And of course, in, in typical Western uh, mainstream media fashion, there was uh, projection outright lies, like the mm-hmm. complete lie that you saw from like the big uh, think tank uh, mouthpieces that Hezbollah is killing babies in Syria or whatever, um, as if it wasn't ISIS doing that. Um, and <laughs> as if that's something that Hezbollah does, like Hezbollah barely kills like captured prisoners. Why would they kill children in Syria? Like kind of a there- thing. There was also like the, the, like the, I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but just it's insane how much hate there was in the sense of like spreading what I think is kind of like the modern day blood libel of Hezbollah's going around with Iran and like converting people to Shiism or like killing their children. Like the kind of stuff that you see in like the mainstream papers, like the Guardian, um, that was just, and, and the sources would always be people who were like in the jihadist groups. Like they'd be like a source from a Harar al-Sham, which was like yeah. a Saudi funded, I believe. Exactly. Exactly. Like- <laughs> it goes back to the, it goes back to the Bandar bin Sultan and Saudi funding of anti-Shia sentiment and propaganda that the U S copied and pasted to a T, um, right. and basically having this like, um, McCar- like it was, it's like McCarthyism, but like the the Saudi version of like um, anti Shia hatred and um, projection um, in these like lot li- like media lies, and then also complete defacement of like what um, Hezbollah actually like their actual approach to people of other um, religious communities. Um, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, why would they defend? Christians in Lebanon and Syria and, and Sunnis. If they're going to forcibly go- convert them. Like, <laughs> it made no sense. Yeah. The other side was doing that too. Like it's projection, just like you said, because the other yeah. side, like this collection of Salafi jihadist groups actually were forcibly converting and killing minorities. But right. also the other thing here, and this is more just a comment, is it's like incredible to me that Hezbollah was so crucial because you mentioned that like, you know, I like people abide by these colonial borders, but really like Lebanon and Syria I mean, there's like families who live on the border that like live on this side and this side. Like it's like just a line that the French and British drew. Um, And so it's incredible to me that his like Hezbollah was essentially protecting Lebanon's territorial integrity, because like you said, ISIS and al-Nusra were literally in Lebanon. They were in Arsal. They were doing bombings of Shia mosques in Beirut. Um, And they were being armed and funded by the U S and its allies like Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And so there's just this, this irony of like the sort of secular liberal bourgeoisie class 
who despise Hezbollah complaining mm-hmm. about Hezbollah while like drinking cocktails at bars in Beirut. Well, right. you know, Hezbollah is the one that they, Hezbollah fighters were the ones who were like dying, literally yeah. dying, making it possible for these secular bourgeoisie liberals to continue to drink cocktails at those bars in Beirut. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just, you know, an aside. But I think that this also brings us to another issue where, you know, Hezbollah wasn't just This is, I think, the Syria moment is where Hezbollah goes from being a Lebanese player to a regional player where Mm. they're helping save, you know, not just Lebanon, not just Syria. If you want to say Syria and Lebanon are essentially like a part of the same land, you know, after 2013, but also Iraq, right? They're playing a role Mm -hmm. in helping the Hashdashabi in Iraq, the PMF, who was essential to fighting ISIS Mm -hmm. after 2014. Suddenly they're no longer focused on the narrow Israeli threat, but on this, you know, genocidal Sunni extremist threat that's, of course, emanating from Saudi Arabia that we just talked about that's affecting the entire Middle East. And then, of course, in 2018, you know, Hassan Nasrallah makes it clear that his movement was also committed to helping the Yemeni people. Um, And he described, which I thought this was interesting, you know, I'm sure you remember, he described the suffering of the Yemeni people as worse than that of the Palestinians. And he said that Saudi Arabia at this moment in time was behaving even worse than Israel. So mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can kind of just discuss from your vantage point that kind of like, I don't know if I'd call it like an ideological evolution, but there's certainly yeah. a change in who the bigger threat is or maybe why they might be the bigger threat. So like the, the regional leadership has to be um, also credit has to, a lot of credit has to go to um, Sayyid uh, Khamenei. Um, in being the ideological leader of regional resistance um, across Lebanon, across Iraq, um, the, the, now the Zaydis, like they have in in Yemen, that that form the base of the Ansar Allah, they have a little bit of like a their own thing, but they're they're still essentially in solidarity um, with kind of like the regional resistance, um, definitely. Um, but a lot of like the um, ideological backing that gave rise to the PMU in 2014. Um, it was a fatwa by Sayyid Sistani, but it was um, encouraged by Qasem Soleimani um, delivering basically the, um, the um, added support um, from Sayyid um, Khamenei um, that um, encouraged the PMU to form and really strengthened and solidified the resistance. Um, so I think that there's a lot of um, what has made regional resistance um, strong and stand um, like so, so increasingly strongly in the past uh, 40 years um, has been definitely the, the direction and the leadership um, from um, Khamenei um, and, and basically from the, the commitments to Islamic resistance that, um, that has um, really kind of solidified um, the the um, military, but also um, ideological um, strength of these groups um, at the time. And so yeah. um, when we're talking about um, the evolution, was the question um, the evolution guess, of... Yeah, like moving, like make it like kind of coming to understand Saudi Arabia as being a huge threat oh, to the region. Right, right. And why, right. And so why like, that I remember the first, I remember the first time that um, I heard Nasrallah express this idea of Saudi Arabia being um, like more of like a immediate threat in some ways 
um, was in 2015 after the Saudi um, siege on Yemen. And then subsequently, um, a lot of like the Saudi propaganda and also terrorist campaigns that reached Lebanon's borders. Mm. Um, And I I think it's like the primary, if we're going to use leftist terms, the primary contradiction of imperialism um, being uh, manifested in the Zionist presence in our region, um, being manifested also in the U.S. occupation um, of the region. Um, obviously, it's not uh, Saudi Arabia that's completely at the center and calling the shots, but they were the most entrenched in a lot of the ca- campaigns of uh, terrorism, of funding, and also of like restructuring this horrible economic rentier system that we have in Lebanon, um, as a side note. <laughs> Um, they're the most essentially entrenched and were causing the most outright aggression at the time um, in place of the Saudis, which were retreating um, in place of the Israelis, which basically right. had retreated against their um, outright aggression against their neighbors after 2006. So Saudi stepped in. It, it played more of a role in um, in being um, kind of an aggressor um, back then and like kind of like to this day, even though they're, they're um, also finding themselves um, right now after the inching liberation of Marab in Yemen, um, at the point we're going to see very soon that the Israelis were at in 2006. Um, they basically, when Nasrallah says this, he doesn't mean that they're more of an existential problem to the region than Zionism. No, because they're essentially the compradors of, of international Zionism, but that they um, were acting as like more of an active aggressor against uh, Yemen, but also um, against uh, Lebanon and the region at the time. Right. And that, you know, and and that brings us to the issue of, okay, so Hezbollah and the so-called Shia crescent, right? That's what we would always hear from the think tanks in DC, but essentially the the axes of resistance are successful in preventing the collapse of Syria. This, you know, another U.S. backed plot defeated, led by Saudi Arabia and their Gulf allies. Then Saudi Arabia, I mean, speaking of this big threat of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia kidnaps Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon in 2017, forces him to resign, essentially like at gunpoint, Mm -hmm. right? They tortured him, forces him to resign under duress in an attempt to weaken Hezbollah, who they feel, you know, Saad Hariri hadn't sufficiently opposed. Um, But of course, uh, this also ends up failing uh, again, like it doesn't work. Then we have elections in 2018 in Lebanon and Hezbollah's coalition wins a majority in parliament. Uh, and this is happening in the backdrop of Trump's maximum pressure campaign on Iran, which in the eyes of the Trump administration, Iran includes Hezbollah. And so yeah. that maximum pressure campaign applies to Hezbollah. And now with Hezbollah gaining a democratic uh, majority coalition, because America loves democracy so much, like now we have to take this maximum pressure and, you know, aim it against Lebanon as a whole. And this is a good segue, I think, into the 2019 uprisings Mm -hmm. um, of October 17, 2019. The first, I think, two or three days you and I would both agree were probably like genuine expressions of grievances against inequality uh, Mm -hmm. that I would argue was actually led by Hezbollah supporters for the most part, but was ultimately and very quickly hijacked by the Lebanese forces party along with the various, you know, Western funded NGOs and civil Mm -hmm. society groups that act as these like force multipliers for imperialism. 
And so the 2019 uprisings very quickly morphed into, as many big protests in Lebanon do, very quickly morphed into this anti-Hezbollah uprising that sought to blame the country's problems and looming economic collapse on Hezbollah. And so here's where I want to ask you to address some of the arguments of the people that, you know, we might, I guess they are, are, are Consider they call themselves like soda people, the yeah. up, you know the revolution people. Um, you know you often hear from this crowd, for example, that the government of Lebanon is corrupt, which is true. But they'll mm-hmm. say that Hezbollah is the most powerful group in the government and are therefore complicit in that corruption, especially since their greatest ally is the ML movement led by the corrupt Speaker of Parliament Nabi Bidi. Uh, and you mentioned Nabi Bidi and ML and sort of like the contradictions between Hezbollah and ML before, but I'd like you to maybe from address, respond to this argument, because it's a compelling argument, right? Like Hezbollah's yeah. in government. It's in a very corrupt system and its allies are in fact corrupt people. So mm-hmm. how, what's the justification behind that? What's the argument uh, to make that, yeah. I guess, okay. So first there's like a contradiction that kind of people kind of need to understand. And this is a contradiction even Hezbollah kind of struggles to work with too. Um, that having potential and power and then actually being in power in a certain institution. And while Hezbollah has the most uh, potential for power, they have the weapons, they have the organization, they even have the manpower as the party with like the largest uh, uh, like popular uh, um, plurality like in, in the country, like in maybe not a majority of the support, um, but like they do have a plurality. Um, but there isn't, um, it isn't the case that they necessarily control the Lebanese government or they have, um, actual, actual stakes in the Lebanese institutions economically or, uh, politically. And they've basically made this clear, um, with kind of letting, um, the, um, like agent Fakhouri come in and out of the country, um, not that they necessarily let them, but this is to really demonstrate that it's not in their control. And it's not that they can't take control of the country, but um, as kind of like the hesitation that they had um, in that 2005 point of entering um, government in a limited capacity showed is that they weren't going to take power unless they could um, essentially take control of the state, which is not something Hezbollah wants to do by force. Um, Philosophically, Hezbollah is kind of guided by the Islamic principle of um, not really um, forcing its um, governance or its system amongst people if they don't have the will to necessarily like live under it. Um, and also in, in Surat al-Rad, where essentially if we're going to talk about corruption, um, that a society can't change unless uh, people change kind of essentially within themselves and they change it by themselves. Um, so corruption is like a widespread problem, um, obviously in the Lebanese government. And it's like, it takes two different dimensions where, um, there is corruption that is encouraged and facilitated and enabled by, uh, the direct comprador alliance between the U S and its allies like Riyadh al-Salami, um, mm-hmm. like Saad al-Hariri, um, like, uh, Samir Jaja and Walid Jamlat. And then there's also just like the informal, uh, the products of informal clientelism. So like more of the domestic um, types of corruption. 
And with Hezbollah, they have to walk a very, very fine line between um, kind of maintaining their own uh, principles as best as they can um, and maintaining the um, unity that I said was so important um, in the post-2000 uh, um, atmosphere uh, politically. Um, any kind of uh, knowing how entrenched uh, corruption is in, in Lebanese society, amongst the Lebanese people, even outside of government, um, they to actually kind of like cause like a internal, um, you know, fight against this is going to be very like it's going to get them war. entangled. It's gonna yeah, it exactly. It has potential. It, actually- it has a lot of potential to start a civil war. So um, Hezbollah is right now, their goal is to um, basically create the conditions to where occupation and imperialism can weaken and recede um, before they can work on internal contradictions, um, such as the different echelons of of domestic corruption that are just the natural products of um, this, like the the Lebanese economic and, and political system. And that's a good segue into the economic collapse. And so, you know, just for some background, I mean, the, t- the 2019 uprising that we're talking about, like, was an absolute failure in the sense of trying to use it to, like, take down Hezbollah. Um, at least those who were, like, put, you know, funding the sort of NGOs and civil society groups that took the helm of that uprising. Um, and it also happened in conjunction with this economic collapse, which was always going to happen, right? Like, Lebanon has this Ponzi scheme economy that was set up after the civil war by American and Saudi allies like Rafi al-Hariri, well, primarily Rafi al-Hariri and Riyad Salemi, who uh, is the central bank uh, governor, who was hired by Rafi al-Hariri to oversee the central bank to basically uh, art become the, but he was, he was hired to architect this economic apparatus that was dependent, uh, well, which left the country dependent on a constant influx of outside money to keep the currency afloat and to mm-hmm. fund imports and dollars. And this right. left Lebanon's economy, which you basically alluded to vulnerable to the whims of global finance capital, meaning whenever, right. whenever we, they we want see, to do, we could see clearly and Nasrallah has mentioned this in his speeches that a lot of the problem, the economic problems we see in the country and the corruption, it comes from the, the country's institution on a, system that is completely dependent and oriented around global finance capital through um, the rentier system of Gulf capital as also a main intermediary. So um, you can't really fight it by completely destroying the um, institutional partisan basis of Lebanese power sharing. Um, You have to destroy, you have to basically confront the material relation of global finance capital to this uh, power sharing system. Which is confronting imperialism. Which is confronting imperialism. Right. And when we talk about this global, like when we talk about the country being depend, like being basically vulnerable to the whims of global finance capital, what that means, right, Mm -hmm. is that whenever the West and the Gulf states that whose money was what was keeping Lebanon afloat, whenever they decided to, they could basically just crash the economy by divesting from the country. And that's exactly what happened following those 2000, those 2018 elections where Hezbollah won that majority coalition. And they keep tightening the noose and blaming local corruption. And somehow, you know, Hezbollah is responsible for all of this. Yeah. Corruption is basically terrorism in that sense. Like, whereas like, right. No, no terrorism, because like, 
the terrorism uh, in, in the Washingtons um, that just that legitimized Washington's intervention totally. into the the Middle East in the post two thousand one like era. Mm. It was it was financed in, in a product of um, U.S. intervention and U.S.'s allies funding these groups like Al Qaeda and um, and whatnot. That's a really um, good point. I actually also, hadn't thought about also, it like corruption that. is the same thing. Corruption is basically the um, was enabled and facilitated by Western economic um, Western economic effect on these um, governments and institutions. So now it's like the West is using corruption as like a um, as a justification to interfere and um, basically crush Hezbollah. And they'll crush every single party that has been determined um, to not really have been successful in challenging Hezbollah post-2015. You could see, like, there's a lot of WikiLeaks documents that show uh, post-2015 that Saudi Arabia and the United States um, began to kind of, like, um, lose faith in their allies um, within Lebanon, um, Samir Jaja was constantly begging the U.S. for more support and the Gulf for more support. Yeah, you weapons. see it. And you then also you mentioned, the you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, also that um, this, is, this is the reason for Rafi Hariri's uh, kidnapping in November 2017. Um, this, and this is an antagonism Lebanon, uh, Saudi Arabia has had with Lebanon uh, post-2008 when um, even in the domestic sense, um, when they tried to basically provoke the future to an armed confrontation with Hezbollah, um, Hezbollah proved, proved itself to be stronger. Um, so at that point um, in the Gulf, they began to, they, you began to see like um, Shia workers expelled from the UAE. Right. Um, Bahrain opened up its secret embassy with Israel in 2009. Um, and uh, 2009 was at the point when um, Saudi Arabia first began to look at the Lebanese front as a, as a antagonistic front rather than as like a proxy with an, an antagonist in it. Um, so um, especially um, post 2018, when Hezbollah and its allies won a democratic um, majority in the parliament, um, the, the hybrid warfare against Lebanon really ramped up the, um, the the Gulf makes up a good portion, historically made up um, a good portion of the capital inflows into Lebanon. This began to completely stop and even become reversed after 2018. Um, the capital inflows into the country began to be uh, decreased. And then that's when we began to see the capital controls put on the banks um, in 2019. And then the exchange rate basically um, went crazy yeah. for the first time in October 2018, then especially after... Um, Happened, I think, yeah, in 2019, but um, it, it happened briefly, I remember in like September, but then it really started to yeah. collapse after 2019. But yeah, um, basically this kind of defines the trajectory of the economic collapse that is uh, directed by the architects of this economic system in the first place, finally pulling the plug and being like, it's, it's this country's fault. Um mm -hmm. Now, the, as far as like the NGO um, propaganda and presence into Lebanon, uh, the NGO um, interference uh, in uh, attempting to restructure um, a more technocratic approach to the Lebanese uh, government and the Lebanese institutions, um, it was present as, as early as uh, the mid-90s. Um, mm. But it took a really, really stro much stronger dimension after 2016 when... Um, the Middle East uh, Partnership Institute um, and the uh, U.S.-backed uh, think tanks um, that work 
uh, within the U.S. embassies, particularly focused on Lebanon, made a consolidation um, during 2016 and focused a lot of their efforts on election monitoring um, of the Lebanese elections. Um, and then at that point and in the years after, especially around 2018, you began to see a lot of projects the UN was financing on investigating corruption in Lebanon. Um, and um, it was very clear after 2018 um, that with the focus on um, municipal um, um, monitoring the municipalities in Lebanon and election um, interference and monitoring and cracking down on corruption. It was kind of like the new pretext the U.S. was using to um, make inroads into the Lebanese um, governmental institutions to basically just uh, completely overtake it um, in order to isolate Hezbollah. Um, right. And it was easy to do because the allies that um, they had supported maybe like 15, 20 years ago, like I mentioned, like from the future movement, from um, the Lebanese forces, from uh, Walid Jimblat's PSP, were no longer finding themselves um, to be really useful. Um, and have <laughs> Total been complete, failures. Complete failures, complete wastes of money. So they, so now it was just like, okay, just completely collapse it um, and, and use... Um, use even Hezbollah's former um, antagonist to be the cannon fodder of this like new anti-corruption uh, discourse. And um, this was very convenient, especially after um, 2017. And this is one thing that really angered uh, the Saudis uh, mm. was that whereas in the 2011 uh, government, Hezbollah pulled out its ministers and basically craps, collapsed the, the Hariri government. Uh, now that Hezbollah had... Um, made the made a unity government essentially and Hariri was no longer as free to basically do Saudi Arabia's bidding under the, this new multi-party unitary government uh, unity government sorry so um, this kind of defines a lot of the context behind the Saudi frustration that had intentionally intensified post 2016 and then also 2016 was the year that the the U.S. banked, uh, U.S. backed uh, central bank, U.S. banked. Um, but the U.S. backed central bank uh, and the central bank governor Riyad Salami, which, as we knew, had a very always had a very close relationship with Washington in putting the sanctions that um, on Hezbollah and on the certain Lebanese right. banks that were accused of having a relationship with Hezbollah. Um, were like the stepping stones in aggravating the crisis as early as uh, 2015, 2016, um, but also the financial engineering that was instituted in 2016 that um, was kind of the first step in um, siphoning dollars out of the economy. Um, we could mm -hmm. do a whole number, another podcast on um, yeah. the mechanics of the financial engineering. <laughs> Yeah. Um, basically it was just putting up really high, um, attractive interest, interest rates in order right. to attract dollars, but then, um, squander, squander them. And then two years later, um, after like the inflows of capital stopped coming for political reasons, um, given that like Saudi Arabia alone, I believe is like accounts for a fifth of the remittances into Lebanon historically, um, there had been basically, um, a complete stop of that money as well, which um, were some of many factors that precipitated into the eventual economic crisis. Um, but uh, there was, uh, especially like as in the in the last like four or five years, um, as I'm explaining the the um, 
the acceleration of the financial and economic aspects of this hybrid warfare that were coupled in um, accelerated also by the um, the NGO um, kind of propagandist propagandist yeah. um, arm of it um, really really intensified um, at kind of like a rapid pace. Yeah, and speaking of the Western funded NGOs and it, this like it, it's so important what you're saying because. That that's really become a backbone of the Lebanese economy at this point. It's one of the only jobs mm-hmm. you can get where you even make yeah. what they call fresh dollars now is if you work for yeah. like an NGO funded by the outside, uh, which is dangerous because then now that like the banking system has collapsed, which used to be the Lebanese economy, now the Lebanese economy is just becoming NGOs, um, yeah. which still leaves the country dependent on outside funding. But right. these Western funded NGOs have also played an important role in politicizing the Beirut court blast investigation, um, which is being led by this guy, you know, this judge, Dadak Bitar, who, you know, very little is known about. However, it is clear that the investigation at this point is targeting Hezbollah's allies. Um, so far, the only people who Batar has attempted to prosecute are from the ML movement and from Marada, which is another Christian movement that's aligned with uh, Hezbollah. And the and only prime minister, the only prime minister was Hassan Diab, which is actually the most, the, least, <laughs> uh, the least involved in any kind of corruption like, let alone anything that happened six or seven years ago yeah um poor guy and, and, he was like in charge for like eight months and he was just in, in 2020 I, and and he was geez. like completely unaffiliated with anything that closely resembles is, the Lebanese government why, it was just some which is engineering why. professor Right, which is why it's easy to go after him. And then, of course, there's this yeah. guy, you know, Mashnuk, who's a former future guy, but future hates him. So it's easy to throw him under the bus. But right. meanwhile, you know, Hezbollah's argued that not only is the probe being politicized, but the judiciary is actually implicated in the Beirut port blast, which they're right about. And the judiciary mm-hmm. can't investigate itself. And, you know, it seems to me that this port blast investigation is being politicized much in the same way that the Hariri assassination investigation was right. politicized. And that ev- investigation ultimately was internationalized um, and was used to try to implicate Hezbollah, at least right. even indirectly. Um, and and what, they're seems- doing, what they're doing essentially, again, as you, as you described, is doing a strategy of, of slowly isolating and mm-hmm. to the point where they can kind of zero in and hone on Hezbollah as being responsible for this. Um, with the backing and blessing of um, the West in providing kind of like the bunk arguments and the bunk evidence um, for this, essentially, you know, just as um, was attempted to do in the in the Hari investigation, where there was the strategy, but then and also there was like the isolation and imprisonment of a lot of um, March eighth allies um, from um, parties that were allied with Hezbollah. Um, in the, um, just on like completely false charges too, like, um, completely false and unjust imprisonments. So, um, while it's, it's like a lot of people were saying like, oh, like, um, they, they Hezbollah wants to protect, uh, Ali Hassan Khalil so bad. Like, no, it's, it's not about that. It's about the fact that there was, again, the same strategy taking place where there was a, um, selective, picking apart of certain officials and, and, um, and, um, ministers and, and whatnot, um, in order to eventually get to the isolation of, and of Hezbollah and falsely framing them as responsible for this. Um, and of course they, they threw a future, um, member, you know, Mishnuk under the bus 
but there wasn't any, there weren't any, um, people from the Lebanese forces that were um, implicated or, or the PSP. Even though they and it's control like they, the he, port. The future movement controls the freaking port. The Lebanese right. forces are like it's, it's in it's their com- area. It's like, completely out of their Hezbollah's territory. Hezbollah doesn't have right. anything to do with the port, like let alone the really stupid propaganda that we saw 0.2 seconds after the, the dust had barely settled after the blast. Um, from Israeli like people on Twitter to Mashrua Leila's uh, singer on on instant one, I think he was. Oh, like, I didn't even know that. He said, <laughs> "Yeah, he put it." He he's like, um, like, there was this accusation that Hezbollah is storing weapons at the port, which is kind of like a big became like a big uh, soundbite. Ah, that's of the crazy. No wonder Westerners like them so much. But like. Um, yeah, I think it was like Hamid Sino that said that on Instagram. Jesus Christ. about that on Instagram. But like, anyway, um, yeah, like there was like, like immediately it was like Hezbollah did it, Hezbollah did it. Um, and that is like the objective that the U.S. is trying to reach um, with politicizing the um, port blast in their favor, um, mobilizing basically the NGO apparatus that is backed and funded by the U.S. and EU um, to come to this uh, conclusion Um and to um, not defend Tariq Batar because of the judge that he is, but to defend the U.S.'s um, approach with Tariq Batar in isolating Hezbollah um, right. in the Port Blast investigation and of basically doing it in this really um, selective manner. Um, and um, one thing I was going to mention with regards to this. Well, while you, well, real quick, I also, I wanted to throw one more thing in about this is that people yeah. I've been speaking to are like, who are actually like in the government, um, say that Dadek Bitar has been meeting regularly with the German, oh, American and French yeah. embassies. I don't know if that's one what thing, you were going to. Okay, that's exactly ahead. what I was going to mention. Um, even down to the week, um, that the massacre of, um, the Harakit Amal and Hezbollah, um, members that were peacefully demonstrating to protest uh, Tariq Batar's um, uh, selective investigation and the, and the um, involvement in this court case. Um, that week, uh, Victoria Newland um, was meeting with the, the civil society organizations um, mm-hmm. in Lebanon. Um, and it was uh, proven also like uh, Dorothy Sheh made her rounds in um, meeting with the meeting with the judge and meeting with a number of um, allied officials in Lebanon to basically give directives on how to uh, proceed with this case and and um, um, basically to, to their allies to basically um, carry out essentially their orders. Um, and as yeah. we know, Victoria Newland was involved in Ukraine, um, involved in a lot of like the um, software Hawkish operations woman. on the Eastern um, European front. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. It was very blatant, um, the level of U.S. interference and activity um, that was uh, taking place um, at the time um, in also using this uh, port blast investigation as a tool in its arsenal. But we're supposed to believe that Lebanon's under Iranian occupation. (laughs) I mean, it's just so absurd. All the interference from like the Western embassies and the Gulf states, you know, Saudi Arabia is like strangling Lebanon right now and its economy uh, with this recent assault. And And then there was also there was also like all of those U.S. officials that basically turned the airport of Lebanon to like an APAC convention. And we're supposed to like think that there's Iranian occupation. 
Right. right. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I do want to, I do want to ask you to respond to one critique that I'm somewhat sympathetic to, you know, cause like one <laughs> criticism we hear, um, is that Hezbollah might be anti-imperialist. Obviously there's no question. Hezbollah is essentially mm-hmm. an anti-imperialist organization, but it's not socialist. Right. Yeah. And so the reason I say I'm sympathetic to this argument is because of course I am a socialist. So what's your response to this critique of the party and do they, in your view, have an economic ideology? Yeah, so this has to go back to the um, Islamic Revolution in Iran. Um, and not just not just at that point in 1979, but also of the scholarship and the um, ideology that was uh, being built um, in the at least in the 20 years before that from the contributions of uh, Sayyid Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr um, of Iraq, um, of Sayyid Musa Sadr in Lebanon, um, and of a lot of um, Shia scholarship um, that was kind of um, emerging in the mid to late uh, 20th century as a challenger, along with Arab nationalism and, and socialism, um, as a challenger against um, imperialism. Um, but uh, the, the Islamic revolution and, of course, the ideology that um, finds itself in solidarity with it amongst these groups and figures that I've mentioned um, it's not just, it, it follows an epistemologically different track than the, um, than the philosophically Western branch that branched out uh, socialism and, and communism, essentially. Um, socialism and communism, too, they're, they're materialistic ideologies, um, and they develop from the post-enlightenment uh, philosophical premise of separating um, religion from the the person um, separating the material from the non-material um, and this isn't something that's really um, that's this is something that's actually philosophically alien to Islam and came um, only in this context of like post enlightenment modernity so there isn't a there's there's actually a lot of um, um, as we see political similarities actually more than differences between uh, the Islamic resistance creed and of um, socialism that finds itself um, in opposition to the same imperialist forces. But um, there's just a very important philosophical distinction that um, Islamic resistance makes in being focused on um, the, the, the philosophical premises of um, Islam um, rather than of materialism. Um, and I guess an example of where this shows up is that there's a belief um, that underlies um, materialist ideologies, especially with communism and socialism, that it is like the external material factors that determine the conduct of man. Um, but with Islamic uh, philosophy, it's like of the, the spirit and the ethics are, are central to how... Um, how kind of like man operates in society. And so it must be the ethical component that is rehabilitated in order for um, society to be rehabilitated. But ultimately the goals of fighting oppression and fighting injustice um, are the same. Now yeah. there's a misconception that um, Islamic resistance, and I don't like to say Shia, like I know it has a very Shia character, but um, it's like almost like a little bit sectarian to say that this is like limited to in, or only for Shiaism. Um, but, um, there's like a misconception that it kind of ignores economics that that's completely not true. 
Um, Muhammad Bakr Sadr, he did like an expansion of Islamic economics. Um, even Musa Sadr did a series of very detailed lectures on Islamic economics. And they emphasize things like um, equity and, and social justice. Um, and the only reasons um, they don't go into the mechanics of it to the extent that uh, Marx did in Capital, for example, um, is because... Um, the the um, correcting the um, basically correcting economic injustice is first and foremost an eth ethical problem, but also we see it's going um, basically fighting um, the oppressive aspects of capitalism is going to look uh, different contextually, um, mm -hmm. and this is kind of seen in the difference that. Marx had um, from looking at um, the aspect of challenging capitalism from the context of the factory to Mao Zedong and co um, conf confronting capitalism in the form of imperialism, mm -hmm. um, where he said that actually like the domestic bourgeoisie has to form a temporary alliance with the uh, domestic proletariat in confronting imperialism. So right. um, it's going to look a little bit different. And I feel like Islam is um, allows the leeway in that, but it's very, it's very detailed in a lot of its economic um, mandates to its community in other ways that I think are um, every bit as self-correcting in the context of a society as um, a socialist model would be um, in the sense that um, there is the mandate of the zakat, which is like uh, um, your accumulated surplus, a portion of it should go to directly to the poor um, and the emphasis on social welfare that Islam has, um, the demand that um, workers be paid their wages and their dues before the sweat falls as, from their heads, as like the um, the the phrase um, says, and that they they should be able to basically determine um, what's what's fair to them, and that there should be um, essentially. Basically, there's this conscious conscientization of, of social justice that is um, evident in, in Islam as there is with um, Eastern uh, Christianity as well. Mm. Um, and as we could see in the Iranian um, model, um, post-Islamic revolution, it's basically, um, it basically is just like a socialist model, but it doesn't label itself as socialist because it premises itself on Islam philosophically rather than materialist ideology, but you do still do see um, na complete nationalization of its resources, domestic production, um, subsidies. That's true, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, like, uh, honestly, Iran is like, um, is like uh, Cuba, economically speaking, in its provision of social welfare. There's a complete, like within the IRGC, the IRGC is... Um, seen as just like this like military force, but also it's like the source of the domestic welfare programs um, in the country, which are very right. expensive. This is, this is why like Iran has been able to withstand uh, U.S. sanctions. As, yeah. And which actually may have pushed actually, I mean, because there is of course a split in Iran, right? Between the reformist and like the right. other camp. That it, right. Economically there is like the reformist camp is much more into the idea of liberalism. Um, mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I feel like we could do an entire episode just on like the Iranian economic model uh, because right. it doesn't, it doesn't get that much attention and I've never actually heard it. Um, right. I never actually heard it framed also, as having socialist elements. Right. And yeah, also like the Iranian economic model, like the, the welfare oriented model, of the IRGC being tied to the commit, the ideological commitment to Islamic resistance, 
Um, mm. As a IRGC thinker, Hassan Abbasi once um, likens um, economic liberalism to social liberalism. Um, because of this. And I think this is a very, I don't think it gets contradictory to uh, like communists in the West maybe, but it's actually very common that there is like a a common and a very underlying um, ideological commitment that accompanies um, the the practice and the decisions being carried out um, in the context of, of basically the main players in the resistance axis, um, which is why there's like, why Hezbollah and Iran and, and their allies, like they work in a certain way is because there's like an ideological commitment um, and a premise to what they do. Um, and this has made them a lot, this has made them more successful in ways that the Arab nationalists um, and the Arab right. leftists haven't, that there is an ideological conduct and that there is a comprehensive um, ideological and organizational um code of, of how things are, are carried out. And, and it was like a lot more fragmented and a lot more arbitrary and vague. Um, and it didn't allow for the level of organization and the right. level of um, discipline that, that honestly has been unprecedented by, by the Islamic resistance that emerged out of the Islamic revolution in yeah. Iran. That's a really good point. And I mean, this kind of does bring us back to the reason that there's this hybrid war, not just Mm -hmm. on Lebanon, but on its allies, or I should say, not just on Hezbollah and ultimately Lebanon, because now Lebanon is just viewed as Hezbollah territory, but also on Iran, you have the sanctions, the stoking of civil war, the using the NGOs, the media to push propaganda, etc. All of this to just weaken Hezbollah, weaken Iran. And I think there's an interesting element that this goes back to now, this day and age is You know, obviously the U.S. attacks any country that's socialist, but Mm -hmm. more importantly, it's not only countries or movements that explicitly identify themselves as socialist or are even socialist. It's literally any movement or country that tries to protect their sovereignty, that tries to forge a path independent of U.S. hegemony. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the main issue. Like Iran could be capitalist as capitalist can be, but still refuse to hand over their resources to the U.S. for free, still refuse to be a client state of the U.S. or really anybody. And that's why well, they're also like targeted, um, right? imperialism, imperialism and the relationship between the U.S., which has a which has the which has basically the monopoly of global finance capital in its institutions mm-hmm. in its hands. It has a very close relationship to um, global capitalism. So um I don't think it's like, I don't know if like we have examples like in real time where you have very capitalist economies. I guess like Russia could be. I was thinking Russia, yeah. I was thinking mostly Russia. Like right now, Ethiopia is starting to be targeted by the US. You also have. it's just what crossed my mind when I thought of capitalists. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I wouldn't, Syria, I wouldn't call it capitalist in the traditional sense, but because of the war weakening the country um, and really like just destroying it from well, the inside also, out. Yeah, Syria no was longer very committed. Yeah. Right. It's, well, it no longer has the sort of socialism that came with bath, the Bathist ideology. That doesn't this, yeah, exist as much anymore. Yeah. Right. And this started, this started to be eroded actually as early as the mid 80s um, with right. the weakening of uh, the Soviet Union um, because Syria had like a very close dependency with like Soviet fuel runs. And then when that started to decrease, um, they had to be kind of forced into neoliberalizing, which only really increased um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, but right. this doesn't really mean that the foundations of the economy were capitalist. 
Um, right, it just right, means right. that they had to basically um, live with the reality of a global capitalist system and, and no longer had the relationship with that uh, Soviet bloc that made um, the the um, the level of nationalization, the level of, of socialist um, welfare provisions that Syria had had in the 70s um, as possible anymore. Right. And on that note, I mean, I want to thank you for coming on and giving me an hour and a half of your time. Like, I think this was such an important discussion. I hope it helps inform people about an issue that I've, I've heard so much interest in. People want like a breakdown of like, why is Lebanon being attacked this way? So right. here you have it. And Julia, I guess I want to end by asking you like, you know, where can people follow your work? Um, I mean, there's like no, um, I, I write biweekly on the viewpoint of press TV. Um, and I, constantly um kind of contribute to it too you could also um find me on facebook as julia mk and um <laughs> facebook hasn't deleted Twitter, you yet <laughs> no i mean they gave me some bans here and there but um they haven't deleted <laughs> you me you persisted yeah they can also find me on twitter i'm not as active um bint mashkara b-i-n-t mashkara um and yeah and well, Julia, yeah, I also do a lot of <laughs> freelancing too, but, um, here and there. So, yeah. Well, I hope we can have you back on at some point to continue what I think was an excellent discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much.